Hello, and thank you for tuning in. I'm Kitty V, one of the many co-authors of the Universal Impact of You podcast. In our main podcast series, we focus on the big picture and the environmental issues we talk about. In this episode series, we want to explain, expand upon, and honestly, just add in some of the facts and info that we wanted to share in the main podcast, but just didn't find the time for. This episode is the little sister to our most recently released segment called Fast Fashion. If you haven't listened to it yet, I recommend it since we will be drawing off of some of what we learned. Okay, let's jump in. In the fast fashion episode, we learned that scientists are trying to grow colored cotton. That is, cotton that when grown and when picked would already have a bright natural color, making it unnecessary to dye it. We learned that this would be really good for the environment as the dyes we use today for our clothes are often laced with chemicals and are quite toxic to the environment. However, over here at Universal Impact, we started wondering, what kinds of pigments and dyes did our ancestors use? Do we still use any of them? And if not, why? Today's episode is all about some light research that we did into pigments and dyes across history. Did you think they were just innocent powders and liquids? Oh, and just throwing out a disclaimer, some of these pigments and dyes were harvested from animals and or are completely toxic. Please do not try to harvest such pigments at home. Now that we've cleared that up, let's begin. First up is white. White paint is arguably the most important color or mix-of that artists use. It's incredibly useful for base coats, highlights, and mixing other colors. However, white paint used to have a interesting source up until about 50 years ago. In our research, a form of white paint could be reasonably traced back to the Elizabethan era, where it was made out of lead. Mind, it was not the kind of lead in pencils, but a white variety. Aptly named lead white, these paints were extremely popular as they were known to be bright and opaque. Additionally, though it was made by grinding up the lead and mixing it with some kind of liquid medium such as oil, the paint was supposed to be very smooth and easy to apply to the canvas. Never fear, though, because these paints were banned in the 1970s. Back in the Elizabethan times, though, it is interesting to note that white lead was also used as makeup. The first Queen Elizabeth was very fair, and as such an important member of the court, other women were flocking to emulate Her Majesty's look. They did this by liberally applying a foundation of lead white and vinegar. As lead is toxic, well, it's not much of a surprise that some authors from the Elizabethan era described how it made the skin gray and shriveled. Second on our list is emerald green. Emerald green was a paint that had a very successful popularity run. It was bright, beautiful, cheap, and happy green. Artists were willing to die for it. Unfortunately, I'm not joking because the paint was very toxic. Emerald green was essentially arsenic in verdigris, which is the green stuff on pennies and the Statue of Liberty. The paint was used in a lot of different ways. The wrap sheet included artificial plants, labels, food, wallpapers, toys, and more. Tragically, though not unsurprisingly, there were victims. In fact, a French painter named Suzanne liked emerald green a lot. It may not be a coincidence that he suffered from severe diabetes because a lot of exposure to arsenic can interfere with insulin secretion. People who wore clothes died from emerald green often died young. Artificial plants with emerald green painted leaves were popular for Victorian households because it made them look brighter. Hundreds of girls were employed to paint the leaves, and chronic arsenic poisoning ensued. Candies such as sugar leaves were painted green, and several deaths followed shortly after. Some people didn't know its deadliness, and some honestly didn't care. Other than the many people suddenly dying of arsenic, the big tip-off was wallpaper. Wallpaper colored by the soon-to-be infamous emerald green was disastrous to health. As early as 1815, Leopold Gemellen, a famous German chemist, suspected the wallpaper's toxic personality. Leopold noticed that when the paper was damp, it gave off a faint mousy smell. He tried to warn people to peel the paper off their walls and get rid of it, and to ban the green paint for good measure. 
The pretty color, however, was too pretty to resist, and no one paid attention to him. At this time, four out of five wallpapers contain arsenic. The other way that the wallpaper passively poisoned the people was simply its dust. Yeah, poisonous dust. If particles of paint from the paper broke off, then they were simply hanging around in the air until something or someone inhaled their arsenic and copper mass. This was found out in 1861 by a Dr. W. Fraser. Did they listen? Of course not. Britain became the leading producer and consumer of arsenic by 1871. Meanwhile, the U.S. was exporting arsenic as pesticides, but arsenic wallpaper still reigned, admittedly less so after the synthetic dyes came into play in the 1870s. Finally, though, they banned their mold green after some poisonous mold grew from damp, rotting wallpaper that emitted garlicky fumes from the arsenic pigments. Third, Tyrian purple. Famously expensive, notoriously stinky, and the color of royalty, Tyrian purple was renowned for its durability, light fastness, and ability to produce a range of shades from pink to crimson to deep purple. However, it was so labor-intensive to get the coveted Tyrian purple dye that only one pound of it was worth three pounds of gold. The price also meant that only the highest in the Roman Empire could wear garments of purple on specific holidays. Any other time, they and the lower elites on the totem pole were the people only allowed to wear a stripe of purple. So, what's the big deal? Why was the dye so expensive? Because it was made of millions of snails! Murex snails are the most popular, and 10,000 to 12,000 of them made only 1 to 1.4 grams of purple dye. Unfortunately, the only way to get the dye was after the snail was dead. The poor things would be trapped, baked, and boiled in the name of pretty colors. Okay, so the average lightweight robe takes about three yards of fabric if you're careful. It takes roughly four ounces of liquid dye to color three medium shade yards. One ounce is about 28.5 grams, so four ounces converts to 114 grams. If 10,000 snails makes roughly one gram of dye, then one needs 114 multiplied by 10,000 snails for the vast amount of dye needed. 1,140,000 snails for one robe. That's not even counting the luxurious debaffa fabric, which means twice dipped in the purple dye. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the vigorous trapping and killing of the snails caused the shellfish to be driven to near extinction along the Phoenician coasts. Excavations have shown vast deposits of snail shells in the outskirts of Tyre, as well as in the outskirts of a city 14 kilometers away called Sidon. It's wondered if the distance between Sidon's dye workshop and Tyre was because of the smell. Fourth, Cochineal. Cochineal dyes can be quite the headache for vegans, as the coloring is hardly plant-based. Apparently, cochineal is a color, while the cochineal is an insect, a really tiny insect that is often harvested off of prickly pear cacti to be made into dye. Yeah, your average pound of cochineal dye is made up of about 70,000 weensy little bugs, specifically female cochineal bugs, as the males do not live very long. The little pests love prickly pear cacti berries. Traditionally, farmers would purposely plant prickly pear cacti that had been infested with the bugs. Then by hand, they would carefully scrape off the nests from the host cacti. Alternatively, little baskets can be placed on the infested cacti, which both shelter the females and make the harvest easier, as now the workers just pluck up the baskets. In essence, the little scale insects are containers of concentrated cactus berry juice. At roughly 90 days, which is iffy, the bugs are harvested and gently killed. No, really. The workers are careful not to squish the bugs so the dye will retain a dark coloring. The proper way to process the cochineals is to kill and dry the bugs in a way that will keep them whole. That way, when they are later crushed and mixed with a liquid to make the dye, the color will be a higher quality. In fact, different varieties of colors made by cochineal bugs can often be traced back to their treatment. 
So now you know your friendly carmine, cochineal extract, E120, or carminic acid came from thousands of bugs. Don't confuse it with red number 40, though. That one's a different shade altogether. Anyway, keep an eye out. Cochineal dye is pretty heat and light stable and resistant to oxidation. This makes it more stable than quite a few other synthetic colors. It is also graded safe enough to use in cosmetics. Because of its abilities, it can be found everywhere. Meats, marinades, drinks, icings, pie fillings, cheeses, sauces, blushes, lipsticks, medicine, paint, fabrics, and a few others. Oh, and don't worry about the insects. The cochineal is actually a scale parasite and considered a pest. They can severely damage the prickly pear cactus. So in reality, I found websites on how to get rid of them. They're not endangered. So as of right now, we need to be aware. But we don't need to save the cochineal posters yet. Fifth, Mummy Brown. This paint was made from a source of powdered bitumen, a type of pitch that nowadays we might call asphalt. Back before the 16th century, though, people thought that bitumen was good for things ranging from toothaches and headaches to dysentery and sores. This wasn't exactly true, but neither was their source. By the 16th century, bitumen was scarce, and people were willing to do just about anything to get it, even disturb the dead. Hence its name, Mummy Brown, also known as Powdered Mummy. It all started because people found out that during the embalming process, the mummified corpses were soaked in this bitumen. One thing led to another, and people thought that the corpses, having been soaked in it, would likewise have the same thought medicinal properties as concentrated bitumen. Perhaps ironically, the word mummy itself comes from this affair. The Persian words for the priceless bitumen were mum or mamaya, and variations of the Persian words were often used to refer to the bitumen that the corpses were supposedly soaked in, and then the word was eventually extended to the bodies themselves. Now, I would have loved to believe that once people realized they were eating ground-up people, they would stop. But no! People believed that mummies had a mystical power, partly due to the otherworldly stories and beliefs about them crossing into the afterlife. Thus, of course, common sense said that consuming something of such lifelike force would restore the consumer to full health, and thus began a craze of mummy powders, tonics, and ointments. As such, the mummy hunting business was booming, despite any legal restrictions that may or may not have been in place depending on who you asked at the time. Some people were derisive, though, calling the use of the mummies as tonics to be rather vampiric, and others marveled that this was going on at all. Shakespeare even added the term witch's mummy to the list of cauldron items from Macbeth along with an owlet's wing. He wasn't the only author who was disgusted by this practice, though. Some fictional characters of the time period were known to call people possessed mummies and suggest selling a body to make mummia. However, these authors were not far off at all. When the character alludes to selling bodies to be mummified, he's actually just stating a possibility. See, mummies weren't just everywhere, and eventually the short supply caught up to the manufacturers. Because mummy was still popular, though, mummies were going to be found. The easy way or the hard way. The easy way, people would become mummy divers and dive into the burial pits to retrieve mummies, whole or not. The hard way, DIY mummies. Yeah, what a creepy art project. They would involve something just long enough for the fake to appear mummified, and this include executed slaves, criminals, or even just animals. And I'm not sure which is worse, the disgusting affair on the whole or the fact that people even figured out a way to scam into it. But back to paint. I mean, these people were eating mummies. Of course they were going to paint with them. Although I can't fathom why the trend stuck around, the paint was apparently a very poor quality too. And nevertheless, some of the mummy powder was mixed primarily with oil to create a brown. 
And though not all artists were exactly happy with the source, there is even a record of an artist that when learning of the origins of his mummy brown paint, buried his last tube of it in order to try and give the spirit a bit of closure. And in the end, people stopped wanting to eat dead people for medicine, and the paint made by mummies wasn't that great anyways. So may this idea rest in peace. Finally, we have some honorary mentions. Matt is a hatter. Back in the day, hatters, people who made hats, really did go loopy. They made their hats out of felt and used mercury to cure the hats, which slowly poisoned the creators. Mercury also had rain in latex paints and artificial blues. Blue. The color blue is rare in nature, so naturally it was one of the hardest colors to acquire. No, really. Blue dye used to be made of lapis lazuli, which is one of the hardest stones used for pigment. This naturally presented problems when trying to pound it into a fine enough dust to use as pigment. Egyptians seemed to have found the stone first, but it was quickly decided that a substitute would have to do. This gave rise to what is thought to be the first synthetic pigment of calcium copper silicate from lime, sand, and copper. An interesting, if a bit tragic note, is that many Chinese emperors were poisoned by concoctions of copper and heavy elements like mercury. This is partly because people mixed the blue substitute pigments into medicine. Despite the creative engineering involved, synthetic versions of lapis lazuli were still expensive to make. Due to this, blue was reserved for rich people and Holy Mary pictures. Over in Japan, we found a blue that is almost as hard to produce. Indigo. If you have ever been confused by rainbows that only had six colors, chances are that indigo is the missing color. It is a sad fate for the shade that used to be THE color for blue denim jeans. Indigo is a plant that can be harvested, dried, and when processed properly, used as a dye. It may seem unremarkable, but indigo has some rather unique qualities. For one, indigo dye doesn't penetrate cotton. Rather, the molecules sit on the outside of each individual thread. Then, when the molecules erode, the fabric fades in a way uniquely its own. Some say that while synthetic dyes are pretty when first applied, indigo keeps getting prettier as time moves forward. Also, true indigo-dyed clothes and fabrics are stiffer and dirt-resistant. Samurai would wear indigo-dyed cloth under their armor because it helped deter bacteria and protect any wounds. Firefighters would also use such cloth because the dye made it flame-retardant up to 1,500 degrees Fahrenheit. But don't go testing your jeans in bonfires. Clothes nowadays are likely to be dyed by chemicals because almost any natural dye is labor-intensive. Even making indigo dye can take up to a year. Then, achieving the best colors from the dye isn't easy either. One fabric product can take more than 10 days to make. Radium Girls In the 1920s, a job was to paint watch faces with radium, a glowing radioactive paint. Many girls signed up for some reasonable pay for a regular job, but it was hardly that. Quite a few girls ended up being buried in lead coffins. While painting details, the girls were often told to lick their brushes to keep the tips small. Only, with radioactive paint, this had devastating consequences, and many girls died from radiation. Later, when trying to make a case for the girls against one of the companies, they exhumed the corpse of one of the girls. It's said that when they tipped the body out of the coffin, it glowed. There you have it, some history on dyes. It's a rather colorful lesson, huh? It's pretty amazing what people used to use as a daily basis for pretty colors. Thank goodness some of them changed. Thank you for tuning in and listening to this History of Hues, and I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Never forget, change starts with you.